0: Welcome to the Inside Out Life, the podcast where we strive for inward reformation that inspires outward transformation in every area, marriage, family, faith, and life. I'm your host, author, and pastor, Chris Schimmel. In this podcast, I'd like to talk about our thoughts being alone with our thoughts. But before I start, I'd like to read just a couple of verses from a psalm, Psalm 131. And this is what it says. It says, O Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It just seems to me today that more and more people need more and more apparatus, like television, and games, and toys, and activities, and entertainment, and parties, and movies, and Books and sitcoms and so forth to occupy them so they don't have to confront their thoughts. No one can just be content and at peace with their thoughts anymore. Ever thought about that? Truthfully, how many people do you you know who prefer to fill every minute of every day with something? that will keep their minds and their emotions engaged. My guess would be that with a whole lot of people that we know, this is true. Alone with their thoughts is one of the most terrifying places in the universe for people to be. And it's interesting that our culture feeds into this Reality, our world today actually lends itself to this trend. For example, in fact, one big example is video games. I mean, kids as young as two, and adolescents, and teens, and even adults into their 20s and 30s and older can play these things from sunrise to sunset. They can eat supper. And then play until they plop into bed, which they do, by the way, reluctantly, because they don't want to nod off until they kill the monster, or find the treasure, or obliterate the bad guy. And they never have to engage a person or confront a thought the entire time. It's it's remarkable how absolutely ensconced people's lives today can be with these things with video games. They can <laughs> they can hide out indefinitely. And of course there's computers. There's enough computer technology these days to keep people engaged 24-7. And people do keep engaged that long with their desktops and their laptops and their notebooks and their 4G's and their 5G's and their wireless networks. People are on the Internet, doing searches and reading blogs and Facebooking and Skyping and Twittering and FaceTiming and emailing as a way of life. And how can we leave out cell phones with all their advancements, droids and smartphones and iPhones with texting and pics and videos and Internet access and apps? My son got a new phone a while back, and recently while he was playing a game on it, Or searching an application I said, Joel, Joel. Finally he looked up at me and he said, what? (laughs) But people don't just busy their minds with new technological toys. Some busy their minds with sports, some with jobs, some with parties, some with fun, some with games, some with movies, some with drugs, some with alcohol or a combination of all of these, anything to occupy their minds because they're scared to death to be alone with their thoughts. People can't face them. They can't face their loneliness. Some can't face their emptiness. Some can't face the aimlessness that their lives have taken. Some can't face their failure. Some can't face their shattered self-image. Some can't face their boredom. They're so void of personal purpose when they get alone with their thoughts, There, there is nothing there worth thinking about, and it scares them so they fill their heads with another activity. Some can't face their guilt. And prior to surrendering my life to Christ, Nightly I would engage in a, a subconscious kind of a ritual of moral justification where in my mind I would compare my morality with that of the murderers and the rapists in prison. and I would do this in order to feel enough peace that I would have a chance for heaven so that, well, I could fall asleep, I guess and I say this uh, ritual was ritual was subconscious because it wasn't until two months after I had become a Christian that I realized that I had even done this for as long as I could remember. It was the oddest thing, and the only thing that alerted me that I was doing it was the fact I hadn't done it in two months after receiving Christ. Subconsciously, I was terrified of where I would end up if I died. It's an example of the terror that can be within us so terrible, our conscious minds can't even entertain it. With my wife, her terror was nightmares. She didn't know why she was having them, or even really that she was, until they were gone after she Receive Christ. Well, this psalm suggests that a right relationship with God will calm the turbulent waters of our minds and souls so they aren't filled with terror anymore. The writer gives two examples to help us understand this spiritual calm. The first example is humility. Humility that produces a kind of contentment that doesn't need to chase ambition. Take a look at verse 1 again. It says there, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound. For me the suggestion is that the heart that desires to achieve its own greatness or fame or wealth or whatever is a troubled or stressed heart and i want to say well duh <laughs> and yet people in our world today chase after these things in mass One of the biggest contributors to stress and anxiety in our world today is the drive to achieve. There are others, but this is a huge one. Now, it's understood that the energy and expectancy of youth is the place where ambition is birthed. I remember feeling two rival drives within me when I was younger. The drive to accomplish much for myself, first of all, because um, I wasn't a believer, but because I became a Christian, there was the drive to accomplish much for God. (laughs) Well, obviously, one is good and one is bad. My whole life, I have battled to ensure that the right drive prevailed, and I think that I'm at least winning the battle. Yet I struggled with this for many years. Which drive do you think people who don't serve God follow? Well, the first one, of course. The drive to accomplish much for self. Its whole premise is achieve because hopefully at the end of achievement we will find rest. Rest with money or rest with prestige. But no one really does. But there's another idea besides achievement that verse 1 presents. And it talks about profound thoughts. Have you noticed that people really like to appear intelligent? I remember once talking to a lady who was a skeptic about faith in God. She responded to me with um, something like, well, I am not your average sucker. I need to have proof. You need to be able to substantiate it to me with evidence and documentation. But what struck me about her statement wasn't really her intelligence. It was her desire to appear intelligent. She wanted to be sure I knew how smart she was. But I wasn't sure. Because I'm just not sure how smart it is to ignore a thousand evidences in nature. And the historical record. And archaeological discovery. And then declare there is no God. Um, that's just not smart to me. People want to think that they're intelligent and that they're smart and they're profound. And people think their profoundness or their intelligence will provide answers for them to the questions of life and how to find peace. But the Bible says, no. Because their desire to be profound is rooted in arrogance. Which, by the way is the opposite of humility, and therefore its end isn't going to be answers. It's just going to be more unrest. It's why the psalmist says, my calm heart isn't haughty or lofty. It isn't concerned with great profound matters. You see, if we want our hearts to find rest We must leave the matters of wanting to be or appearing to be intelligent or profound and wanting to achieve. We must leave those things to the Lord. It is common to be just who we are and who God made us to be and to be very satisfied with that. The second example that the writer of the Psalms gives is the quiet and calm, of a weaned child. So when we lived in New York, outside our back door, my wife had bird feeders. And since we lived in the country, let me tell you, <laughs> we had birds, we had finches, and we had robins, and crows, and wrens, and blue jays. and hawks, and vultures, and cardinals, and blue herons, and and orioles, and eagles, and and bluebirds. I mean, you name it, we had it. Well, one day, some blackbird of some kind was sitting on the ground squawking, you know, and I thought, what is his problem? And then another came along. And put a bug in its mouth and it stopped (laughs) and then it took a swallow and it started squawking again until the other blackbird came back and put another bug in its beak and I realized oh it was a baby bird that had not quite yet been weaned this scripture is referring to the tender humility of a little child who is still dependent on its mother, but who has reached the place where it, no, it is no longer crying and fretting over meeting its most basic hunger needs. Immediately after World War II, the Allied armies gathered up many hungry homeless children and they placed them in camps where they were generously fed and cared for. However, at night, they didn't sleep well they they seemed restless and, and, and afraid and they would whimper and and cry finally a psychologist hit on a solution after the children were put to bed they each received a slice a slice of bread to hold if they wanted more to eat uh, more was provided but this this particular slice was to be held not eaten and it produced incredible results, the children would be able to have calm and peaceful sleep, subconsciously feeling that they'd be certain to have something to eat the next day. The psalmist is simply comparing the quiet and peace of his soul because of his right relationship with God to the peace of a child laying quietly on its mother's chest no longer needs to cry and fret and fret to be fed. The psalm ends with a plea for God's people, all people, really, to place their hope in God. And the inference is, when we do, only then are we truly at peace within. I'll finish with this. Have you ever asked someone Are you going to heaven? (laughs) Now, if you ask this of, say, 20 people, probably more than half will answer, I sure hope so. (laughs) Well, there are two reasons that people answer this way. One is, they aren't sure, they really aren't. They hope that they're going to make it to heaven. But the second reason people answer this way is they feel that it's arrogant to be sure They think arrogance about that precise issue is a sure way to disqualify oneself from getting to heaven. But the scripture indicates that we can know. And along with this knowledge exists a peace within our souls about it. It's not at all arrogant to have this knowledge about your future home in heaven. It's normal for the child of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 through 17 says of the, of the Christian who has had God's Spirit enter them at uh, the, the time of conversion. It says God's Spirit in us bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. Well, heirs of what? Well, heaven, for starters. So if we have his spirit, we are his children. And if we are his children, we're in. That's not arrogance. It's, well, it's spiritual DNA, really. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if we don't have this hope of heaven in us, that only comes from knowing Christ, we are of all people most miserable. In other words, we can't face the terror within. It's the terror that I felt before I was a Christian and that my wife felt before she was a Christian and many others feel as, well, different things. But as the disciples learned on the Sea of Galilee, only Jesus can calm the troubled seas and along with that we learn only he can calm our troubled thoughts and emotions. If we're right with God it brings calm and peace for eternity which by the way begins the moment that we surrender our lives to him. So I want to ask you how are your quiet moments when you are alone with yourself.